नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वर्क पॉडकास्ट दिस इज कुशल नेहरा सो टुडेज पॉडकास्ट इज विद जॉनथन के जॉनथन इज एन एडिटर पॉडकास्टर ही इज ऑब्वियसली द एडिटर ऑफ कुलेट एंड आई रीच्ड आउट टू जॉनथन रिसेंटली आई रेड अ वंडरफुल एसे रिटन बाय जॉनथन अलोंग विद मार्गरेट वेंटी इफ आई एम गेटिंग हर नेम राइट and uh, it was called when trans activism becomes government policy and as always whenever i come in toronto i message jonathan i was like john are you around and he is nice enough he said come on over yes. so we are at john's house we're recording this podcast at john's house as and as you know the the tradition of the charvak podcast is <laughs> i go to people's houses and i start recording podcasts with them so i call this collect canadian studio yes as uh, as you know quillet's uh, based in australia where my boss lives mm-hmm. claire layman but uh yes this is our canadian outpost right here in toronto so john um we did speak last year last time it was uh, you know i was speaking with you uh, for the quillet podcast so we've we've turned it around to this time it's going to be you but uh, on the outset john i was just telling you offline too that when i read this essay that you've written i was um, disturbed so can you give me a brief background like so what what was the mental mental state that led you to write this like why uh, look you're a father you're a parent so how does it feel as a parent to begin with i want to start there then we talk about the nitty gritty of the essay itself so you know there's a lot of people who will come to this issue and they'll start off by saying you know as as the parent as the father or the mother of of a girl or three girls or in my case it happens to be uh, three girls um and then they they go from there i generally don't like to start from that premise because i think this is something that should concern everybody the phenomenon we're discussing primarily is affecting teenage girls mm-hmm. uh, you know many of whom suffered depression or uh, they may be lesbians or they may have suffered trauma and in some cases they are vulnerable to an ideological movement that seeks to explain away mm-hmm. some of the difficulties associated with puberty and growing up mm-hmm. because, uh, well maybe I was born in the wrong body and I'm actually yeah so but this is a, this is a problem or this is an issue I think that affects everyone in the sense that uh, there are there are all sorts of psychological difficulties and challenges associated with growing up i think anyone listening to this who's <laughs> whose age is in double digits can identify with that none of us have a perfect adolescence mm-hmm. and there is a movement especially in the west uh, and especially in english speaking countries where a lot of people who are experiencing these these very common difficulties associated with adolescence and sexuality Uh, and the changes in their life associated with puberty they they unfortunately become vulnerable to the idea that somehow they were born in the wrong body that they want to escape that body mm-hmm. um and i think there at least it, it began i think as as a very well-intentioned movement to help these people mm-hmm. uh unfortunately to a certain extent in canada especially it's gone overboard and now the activist campaign to encourage young people to express the difficulties they're facing in life as being born in the wrong body and requiring surgery and pills and in in some cases surgically altering their body and even sterilizing themselves it it has become a kind of in at least some subcultures in Canada including unfortunately education 
it's become a very cultish movement and there's very little pushback in Canada. Um, I think in other countries, especially the United States, you see a kind of culture war between people who are extremely socially conservative and, mm-hmm. and, and to my mind go too far. They actually are transphobic um, in some cases. Yeah. And a lot of them are, are very religious people. Nothing wrong with religion. And my, you know, I can, <laughs> we've debated that in the past, but um, in some cases you get right-wing transphobic people who, re- who really, for them, it's, it, to, to my mind, it goes too far. But in Canada, there's really only one side of the debate that's been represented in any effective way. And it's pushed the entire Canadian educational and political and even media establishment in the direction of a kind of puritanical, some people call it gender identity. I I generally avoid that phrase, but a movement that encourages young people to blame um, being born in the wrong body for many of the problems they face in life. And it's, it's, it's having tragic consequences. So I want to focus first on the transphobia itself. Now, Somewhere I have always noticed in this debate, you know why it's very interesting is because in my culture, uh, as people, uh, maybe most people don't know, kinner, you know, kinners are an integral part of our culture. Okay. I'm not saying Indian culture does not have transphobes or anything of that sort. I'm not even making that claim, but, you know, kinners are always around us. So we were ne- like in the Indian government officially recognizes three genders. By the way, just because we're, we're, going to be cross posting this on the Quillette podcast. Can you just tell my listeners what, what kinders are? So kinder, uh, 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 I don't know what the English word would. Some people use the word eunuchs or yeah. some people call them hermaphrodites in English. These I, are all very loaded. I mean, a eunuch is somebody who, who tip, a male who has surgically removed their testicles. Yeah, but in this case, I think uh, some, some uh, humans are just born uh, in, with certain uh, preconditions. Intersex? Uh, it, it, it's not even intersex. It's so it's so complicated that it's not even intersex. And uh, in fact, I wanted to read a policy document for okay. you from uh, India. It was, uh, you know, it was very interesting that India has this policy document. And, uh, and I was like, this has never been an issue in India. Why is it such an issue? Uh, in in this part of the world, especially uh, certain parts of the West, uh, especially the United States of America, where I have never understood why people are debating this so much, why people are, at times I feel, mad at each other for, yeah. for things I don't understand. And it, it's called the Transgender Protection of Minorities Bill 2019, which was, uh, uh, of all the things... Uh, which people find very shocking, promoted by the right-wing BJP government. That's not unusual, actually, uh, because you've seen this in some Islamic countries. Um, my understanding is Iran and Pakistan. Oh, yeah, but their reasons are different. I know. The reason there is is, is, is homophobia is so yeah, prevalent there that the they reason. would rather a person present as a, a straight woman than a gay man. I know, yeah. but in India, the reason is completely different. In India, the reasons are literally... Uh, to protect trans rights. Okay. So and and uh, the definition of trans in India is so detailed, it is so elaborate that uh, when I was going through the definition of uh, trans, uh, what what does it entail to be a transgender in India, and I and I started comparing it with uh, you know what, <laughs> the debates over here, I was like, wait, what are we? fighting about uh, again india was not even an issue and and basically what they did was when they uh, they 
they called it a bill and then they basically created a subcategory of the third gender like india since its independence always has had three genders okay always india officially has recognized three genders since 1947 as a democracy as a civilization for 6000 years india always has it's it's a very normal thing in india okay we have three genders in india male female and kinnar okay we call it kinnar and now the 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 basic difference between the west and india is india just kept on accepting subcategories under kinnar what percentage of the population self identifies as kinnar kinnar i think it's not more than 2 to 2 to 3% 2 to 3% nothing more than that okay. and and if you look at government forms in india you will always see male female and other okay they will give you the option and this has been a very normal thing since years in india which is why and when i find uh, the visceral reactions over here i find it very fascinating as an indian because for me with the one thing i appreciated the most about your essay is because you guys spent so much time making sure that you know there is gender dysphoria there is genuine transphobia which is what i appreciate which is why i wanted to focus on that bit is where somewhere down the line there are people who genuinely have these yeah. feelings and we should appreciate uh, the reality and we should maybe accommodate them but the problem is that when does a reality become a social contagion mm. i guess that's where the line has to be drawn right and so where do you think maybe we can start here then where do you think this starts becoming a social contagion then so first of all i should say that uh canada and other western countries have uh in recent decades enacted laws to protect the legitimate rights of people who identify as transgender uh making sure for instance like you can't just be fired for your job from your job or thrown out of your apartment because you identify as trans uh and i think these are sort of what i would call normal liberal human rights policies and and they're they're quite welcome uh you know i don't think you should i don't lose your job as a police officer or a cook because you're you identify as transgender i think people should be able to dress as they please uh i would say that <clears throat> in the western countries it was probably in the late 2010s that this issue started to really become a culture war flashpoint because that's when i think a lot of maybe culture critics would say it stopped becoming a normal liberal anti-discrimination movement which certainly people like me welcomed and started to become more of a kind of positive social signifier among progressive within progressive subcultures and an active means for people to expand the idea of gender dysphoria so gender dysphoria i think uh maybe 0.7% of the population suffers from it according to one um one source uh acute gender dysphoria is is requiring surgery and that sort of things isn't as much lower people stopped seeing it as something that should be accommodated in the same way as religion should be accommodated and race should be accommodated as a way to prevent discrimination against those groups and it became more of a promoted means of explaining away a broad range of difficulties that people face in society people maybe suffering trauma people who are wrestling with their sexual orientation and maybe are looking for an alternative explanation for why they're attracted to 
uh, people of the same sex, and you started to see the numbers explode, in particular, you started to see the numbers of trans-identified people explode among uh, young female adults, teenagers, adolescents, often in clusters. Um, so there's a Lisa Lippman, who was a researcher who was then affiliated with Brown University, uh, did the first, published the first peer-reviewed research on what came to be known as ROGD, which rapid onset gender dysphoria, where you had what's formerly called social contagion in schools uh, and, and peer clusters, often uh, online mediated communities, uh, where groups of girls would suddenly all declare that they were, were trans. Um, and that's not the only explanation for gender dysphoria. There are some mm -hmm. people who really do suffer legitimate forms of gender dysphoria. And I think they, um, if it's persistent, they, they certainly deserve access to, uh, to therapies, which I should say that some conservative Republican states, they're trying to deny them that, which I don't think is the right policy. Um, but as this social contagion started growing, so did the, the idea that, you're not allowed to talk about the social contagion because if you talk about it, it means you're less likely to, to support what came to be called affirmation. And affirmation is the idea that you just, when a child of whatever age comes forward and declares themselves to be transgender, you just automatically reflexively affirm that self-conception and proceed to therapies, which eventually often do include, unfortunately, um, the often dangerous pharmacological and surgical uh, therapies that can result in horrible side effects and sterilization. So here's the thing. What grown adults do should not be anybody's problem, in my view. Mm -hmm. After the age yeah. of 18, I mean, there could be a debate. Uh, science says that the frontal lobe is developed after the age of 25, so should we... I mean, you need to pick some legal. Yeah, so we need point. to pick some legal points. So, I mean, I'm personally fine with 18. Mm -hmm. After what grown adults do with their body after the age of 18 is none of my business. But then, it's. I mean, I'm a student of philosophy, so it's not that easy, right? And so, uh, as the famous Sorites paradox gets, right? Where where does the grains of sand become a heap of sand? We just don't know where the line is. Mm -hmm. And then, then there's a typical problem where in some cultures of uh, female genital mutilation now that is uh, that is illegal in in most countries in the world uh, i know it is illegal in india and in the west but although it happens in india for the record i know a certain subculture in india also uh, indulges in it uh, there was a famous case in michigan in the united states of america where there was a case of female genital mutilation and then uh what is so unique about x and what is so okay with y is something i don't understand and and these are real problems but for the benefit of uh quillette uh, listeners john i do have the definition of a transgender the legal definition of the transgender as per the transgender protection of rights bill 2019 this is in india yeah okay by the ministry of social justice and welfare there is a social justice ministry in India, in case people did not know. And it says this bill defines a transgender person as one whose gender does not match the gender assigned at birth. It includes, and this is where the 
uh, expansion comes. Trans men and trans women, persons with intersex variations, gender queers, and persons with socio-cultural identities such as Kinnar and Hijra. So they have clearly separated them too. Intersex variations is defined to mean a person who at birth shows variation in his or her primary sexual characteristics, external genitalia, chromosomes or hormones from the normative standard of male or female body. So it's a very comprehensive definition. And this is India. Okay. And they have done it. And why this bill was done was basically you cannot now discriminate against any of these people in residence, in employment, in education, in healthcare, uh, and uh, they are entitled to all welfares. And there is, in fact, a penalty where uh, if you discriminate against them, the National Council for Transgender Persons will actually do a thorough investigation and uh, they will actually, the law will take its own course, obviously, uh, subject to, but India actually did formulate this bill and it was not the Iranian reason as many people. It, it sounds like a kind of standard anti-discrimination law, yes. which is great. Yeah, and, and it, it to me, but in India, this, it has not now there could be multiple reasons why it has not reached the but just to just level. to be clear i know very few people here in canada in canada or i don't know as much about the united states who would object to that kind of legislation i mean we've had that kind of legislation in canada for many years it's and it wasn't particularly controversial nor should it be controversial what became controversial was when as i said just a couple of years may late 2010s when what was originally an anti-discrimination movement felt more like a socio-political movement that some people felt had a recruitment aspect to it, um, where you had people in schools who were encouraging children to maybe blame a lot of their problems in life, because everyone has problems, um, on this phenomenon. and started to become embedded in government policy in a way that went beyond anti-discrimination. So I think it's very interesting that that India is up to date on this. I think it's great. Uh, anti, you know, liberal anti-discrimination laws are foundational building block of a, a humane democratic society. But what we're looking at, especially in Canada, goes goes beyond the kind of phenomenon that that kind of law, I believe, was designed to address. Okay. I got very confused with this paragraph in your essay where you said in 2022, Trudeau's government announced something called a court, federal 2SLGBTQI plus action plan. Like you said, the digits never end, first of all. Yeah. And, and then it says, which was described as a court, a whole of government approach to achieve a future where everyone in Canada is truly free to be who they are and love who they love. Now, what does this mean that if you're a kid and if you want to get a surgery done in Canada and even if your parents don't consent to it, it will be allowed? Uh, I think that if a, if a, ch a child wants to actually get a what they call gender affirming surgery, what is, is in effect um, sex change surgery, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I certainly don't think it's as simple as a child just showing up to a clinic and say, you know, oh, thank goodness, because I was really scared. When I yeah, and and I don't I don't think anything in that article would would say that that's the state of the affairs. The state of affairs, although you have had child services official go after parents who were not willing to quote unquote affirm 
their child's belief that they were born in the wrong body, which to me, the idea of being born in the wrong body is, is a kind of religious idea. It's um, almost like you want to exercise spirits from your body. And I, that, that's one of the reasons I object to some of the extremes in this movement, because it does have religious overtones. It seems like almost like an ersatz religious faith. Uh, however, uh, the, what, what, what many parents complain about, um, and not just like religious Christians and not just religious Muslims, although they've been at the, the, on, on the lead of this pushback, uh, but also many um, lesbian and gay activists who believe that this is a campaign that's homophobic. How? In the sense that you have, in, in all, many, many examples, you have a confused gay teenager who is being bullied because they're gay. They are, and, and, and to them, the way to resolve the cognitive dissonance and say, well, I'm really straight. It's just, I'm a straight person who's trapped in this gay body. Yeah. And it becomes a way to reinvent yourself in a way that, you know, maybe now I won't be bullied. Maybe now I'll be a new person. Maybe those negative feelings and belong to a person in the past, which is why you get this stigma against dead naming. Uh, can you explain what dead naming is for so, the benefit of my viewers? So <clears throat> let's say I'm, my name is John Kay, and I say, no, my name isn't really John, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's Brenda. And anybody who calls me John is performing this hate, hate crime because they're referring to this person in the past who no longer exists. I'm now female. Uh, when I was male, I was tortured and everything was horrible because the world didn't see me. Uh, I didn't see myself as I truly was. Um, it's, it's a kind of born again idea, right? Like referring to yourself, you know, as a pagan when really, you know, now I'm a Christian and don't talk about my pagan life. That's, that's, that's a horrible period of my life. I want to confine to the past. That's fascinating. Well, it, the, the dead naming thing I find very creepy. I, I've written, written about this elsewhere. I have a friend who went to, um, a, it was a, effectively a lesbian wedding here in Canada, which is it's fine. It's very common. Yeah. Uh, it's been common here for, for decades. Um, but one of the women very recently uh, started identifying as a man. And in the photos that were at the wedding and in the speeches, no one was allowed to refer to period of this person's life before they had transitioned a couple of years ago. So, you know, all the photos on the table, all the speeches were kind of like done in this very unsettling thought controlled way. Like time began a few years ago in this person's life. They were just sort of like dropped from a spaceship onto the earth as a man and everything preceding it was this no go zone in terms of, showing pictures of them or their art projects, anything that showed that they were actually a girl or a woman. And to me, that's like a very Soviet way of reinventing North history. Korea. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like there's no, I mean, when you say this, I, I don't, I don't like to engage, you know, sometimes you hear people say, Oh, it's like the gulag. It's like the, no, no, to me, it sounds like North Korea. It's, it's that kind of um, totalitarian impulse to, rewrite history and you often see this um with uh activists who by the way this manifests itself in all kinds of extreme movements like 
you know, you'll, you'll see some like extreme right winger who spent, spent their years as a Marxist and they were like, Moe, yeah. I was so confused. I was so miserable. I just didn't even know it. And now I've seen the light. And now, you know, it's, it's like a sort of come to Jesus type thing. Every, I don't know if every religion has it, but certainly in, in the, in, in the Christian cultural tradition, the, the, the idea of a road to Damascus moment when, you know, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, the great founder of the Christian church, like on a smaller scale, there are a lot of equivalents to that in these movements where um, people have an epiphany and they realize who their true self is. There's, I mean, putting aside gender and religion, there's a lot of like self-help movements that are based on this idea. Uh, you know, Tony Robbins, you know, like discovering the person within, discovering the giant within, the idea that there's this incredibly confident, successful person buried in the soul of, of everyone around you. you just have to discover them. And to some extent, the really activist fringes of the, tra the trans movement, because it has, has many components, does kind of resemble that, where once you discover this essence of a person you are, you're just going to be happy and fulfilled, and you're going to radiate, they call it trans joy, trans liberation. I mean, th these phrases, I, it's in the article that, that you read, have actually become part of government literature, which again, have the air of kind of religious literature. Sounds like somebody's writing a Bible. Uh, oh, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Canada is a, it's a post-Christian society, which I mean, suits me fine. I'm, I'm Jewish and I'm not especially religious and I, uh, I, I don't want to live in a, <laughs> any kind of Christian theocracy, certainly. But there is a, uh, to, to cite a phrase, there's a God-shaped hole in the, con in the political consciousness of many Canadians. I want to talk about A it. lot of these Canadians you talk to, I mean, it's clear, in some cases, like I actually know many of the most progressive Canadians I know, they grew up in religious Christian, at least culturally Christian families. Mm -hmm. And at least on some subconscious level, they're looking for some kind of replacement for the articles of faith and the rituals. And, and it isn't just the gender stuff. You also get the land acknowledgements. Like, I am a settler. I am living on stolen lands. The sin that resides in my heart shall always stain my legacy. You know, give it back. And, and also, and also uh, the work of decontaminating my soul shall be the work of a lifetime. It shall never be complete. I shall disrupt my consciousness. I shall live in uncertainty and pain. Like it's a kind of, um, it's a confessional reflex. Yes. It's also a self-flagellation self reflex. Absolutely. And, but, and not, not to pick on Canada. I mean, we kind of all have this. Like to some extent, many of us, you know, guilt... <laughs> Guilt is part of the human condition, and it takes political expression in many societies, um, in all kinds of movements. Um, in, in Canada, right now, it's you know some of the gender stuff, but mm -hmm. every time someone says a land acknowledgement, again, very well intentioned, a lot of it, when I listen to it, um, you know, you kind of see the, the glassy eyed recitation of these things. It's like these people are a church, um, these people are channeling some kind of cultural reflex they have they don't quite know what to do with it because they don't go to church on sunday they don't go to confession um but, but they have that reflex and this is one of the things they put it into 
this idea that, well, I might not have religious this is my new thing. Sin, but I have a kind of political sin. sin. And it crosses generate. This is this to me is very creepy that it crosses generations. You see people on Canadian social media apologizing for stuff that like their ancestors did five or six generations ago. Why should I apologize for anything? It's really creepy. Um, now, look, again, there's uh, there's there's some green of truth to it. Like, you know, if if you're a stockholder in a corporation that did horrible things 40 or 50 years ago, and you feel like, well, okay, I've profited from that. I mean, it's, or if you're like, your family did stuff when you were a kid and you kind of like knew it was wrong and you didn't say anything. I mean, I can see where the impulse comes from. Um, humans aren't just social creatures. We're ancestral creatures. We, we like to honor the legacy of our relatives and, you know, we're proud if our, if our ancestors did wonderful things. Yeah. Uh, ancestor worship is a huge part of many cultures and even survives in some. Yeah. So it, it's not as if, <clears throat> it's not as if Canadian progressives invented this intergenerational well, absolutely. reflex, absolutely. but it's taken expression in Canada in, in a very unsettling way. So, so John, in many ways, from what I get, this sounds like a crisis of meaning <clears throat> that happens in many yeah. Christian societies in the West where, um, and you know, John, it's uh, a lot of it has to blame with folks like you and I, yeah, the disbelievers. <clears throat> we, you know, <laughs> we the disbelievers who attacked religion and its excesses, and then we, you know, when religion said, "Okay, yeah, maybe this was a little too much," we'll correct this. We kept on smashing them. We kept on smashing them. We kept on smashing them. So, do you think we, as uh, disbelievers, part of the movement of okay, I am a different kind of disbeliever from an Indian pantheon, but you know, we've all been there. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Dennett, the Four Horsemen, New Atheism, and look what they gave us. I think <clears throat> there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people who are looking for a tribe, and sometimes, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> sometimes the reflex to bash your own tribe becomes its own kind of tribalism. So if you live in a very intensely nationalistic environment mm -hmm. where let's even, you know, let's say you live in the United States mm -hmm. and Trump has just been elected and everyone around you is walking around with these MAGA hats and they're talking about make America great again. And they're saying things that you regard as xenophobic and build a wall. It's not unnatural that you would go on social media and say, my tribe does not include these people. My tribe is the people who push back against this. And that becomes its own kind of tribe, a sort of anti-nationalist, a sort of anti-tribe. And social media makes it very easy to create an anti-tribe because Twitter in particular rewards oppositional postures. Absolutely. Oppositional postures. Um, and by the way, in some parts of the world that can be very, become very, very dangerous. If you're, if you're in Saudi Arabia and you say, well, you know what? My, my oppositional tribe is I hate Wahhabism. And I'm going to start... I'm going to start a YouTube channel where I talk about how horrible Wahhabism is. You're going to end up in jail. Uh, in, in, in the United States and Canada, on the other hand, you're going to end up an assistant professor at a local college. We live in a society, or Canada, which I kind of like. I mean, I like the fact that you can make a career and a reputation by opposing the, do what, the dominant culture. However, in Canada, especially, I would say that anti-tribe, that mm -hmm. tribe built, built around guilt and bashing what Canada was and, you know, people who say, oh, you know, 
the occupied colonial lands known as Canada, that has kind of become the dominant tribe itself. And like, it's, it's contextual, but like on college campuses, in government literature, uh, certainly in the arts community, the, the anti-tribe has become the dominant tribe, but it continues to present itself as oppositional. So you often will see, it's kind of hilarious actually, like you often hear these activists or educators saying, we have to disrupt education. We have to disrupt the dominant narrative. And I look at, and I, then I look at who's funding these organizations and it's like the major banks, it's the Canadian government, it's the provincial government, it's the city government. It's, so I was like, well, who are you going to disrupt? Like, you, you know, your whole activist career is based on getting grants from every major institutional player in Canadian public life, including in many cases, big publicly held corporations. Yeah. So the conceit that you are disrupting anything is wearing kind of thin because at least when it comes to the commanding heights of Canadian education, activism, media, um, a lot of people would say what needs disruption is kind of this incessant dogma that is, is built around a kind of Canadian anti-tribalism. And I think there has to be a balance. Like, I don't, I don't want to live in a society where it's illegal or even highly stigmatized to criticize your culture or your government or, or your history. Like Canada's done lots of terrible things. It's, it's like every country. Um, I would say maybe it's done, it's less blood soaked than, than most countries, but there's, there's plenty of things to be ashamed of about Canadian history. Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the idea that it's, it's wrong to criticize your country is ridiculous. Uh, and I don't want to live in that kind of society, but I also don't want to live in a society where, talking endlessly about that and more importantly regarding it as a stain on your own personal airsats religious soul becomes its own kind of cult and unfortunately that's what a lot of canadian public life has become uh, sort of rituals of self-flagellation that channel this this movement and i think there's a tie into the gender thing because you see a lot of people, some of the same people who say, oh, I'm a guilty settler living on stolen land and I shall forever work on reconciliation. And they're often the same kind of people who will say, uh, I'm a white ally who supports Black Lives Matter and I will forever think about my white privilege and ways to erase myself from the white supremacist power structure. And then they're also the same kind of people who are like, I am a heteronormative cis straight person who is very conscious of my privilege and endeavors on a daily basis to help trans people and non-binary people navigate this intensely phobic society we live in. A lot of these ideas are fungible. Like they just, if you substitute out gender from you know, sex, uh, a nationality, it's kind of the same movement. It just projects itself on different aspects of, of the human condition. Yeah. To me, it, it, it's a mixture of a little bit of everything. I uh, People often, in fact, it's going to be one of the things that I'm writing in my book. I'm currently writing a book too. I intend to publish it next year, but I'm actually looking at multiple issues. And so it's very interesting. I'm going to title my book, Why I'm Not an Atheist. Okay. Uh, and it's going to be my critique of uh, atheism, how it developed in the West. And, and just, by the way, a plug for that article you wrote for Colette which was very much about how taking this Western label of atheism and projecting it on the much more nuanced conversation yeah. about 
these issues that, as you said, has have been taking place in India for yeah. for centuries, yeah. uh, does does a disservice to to that the disbelievers. And, yeah, and I'm just uh, I forget the title I put on that Quillen article, but it was very interesting because I remember you were frustrated that people, in, in, including many people in India, will insist on talking about these issues through the idiom of Western philosophers, yeah. who you know even by the Western Enlightenment came to this very late compared to Indian thinkers. Yeah, and, and you know what the fascinating thing for me is that uh, I, I see this as an outsider, right? I, I come here every year, stay here for four to five months, and I go back to my home country. Here, here is Canada. Canada, yeah. yeah. Canada and America, I mean, more so in Canada. I, I think out of the five months, I'm in America for a month and a half, and three and a half months, I'm in Canada. So I, I have an outsider's perspective to this country. I just look at it, observe, talk to people, and... Like I was with my friends and, you know, I was like, why does everything about have to be about either white aggression or white guilt? I, I actually asked this to my It's friends. actually incredibly narcissistic by white people is they think that people who aren't white go around thinking all day about what white people think about them. Yeah. Which they don't. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it, it, and I could see it as an outsider, but I did not like, I would hear my friends, they would constantly self-flagellate on Facebook. I had to unfollow some of them. I could not take their self-flagellation. I'm like, just stop. I Yeah, so I, for me, that was, do you remember a couple of years ago, there was that horrible Islamophobic attack in Christchurch, New Zealand? Yes. Horrible thing. And it was just, I mean, it, it was, the, the guy put it on Facebook. And I mean, it was just a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Yes, yes. I wouldn't say I lost friendships over the response to that, but I remember there were people I respected here in Canada who said it is the duty of, this became like a popular meme for about 15 minutes, it is the duty of every white person in Canada to reflect on the white supremacist culture that allowed this to happen. And I remember thinking like some racist nutbag on the other, literally on the other side of the planet does this horrible thing and I have to spend the day in church what? no but it's like for some people it's yom kippur every day and yeah. i'm like you know what there's there's That's horrible so people doing horrible things around the planet all the time and if i have to like get on my knees and beg for forgiveness because of all these nutbags there's seven billion people on the planet <laughs> like a lot of them are nutbags and a lot of them are white and a lot of them are male and a lot of them are straight and a lot of them are disc golf fans and just, i'm not going to apologize for stuff that every member of that group yeah, does like it's so just true. we all fall into 50 different categories it's frustrating but it's 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 a part of that reflex that says i'm going to apologize for what my great-grandfather did the fact that this guy's white and living in new zealand i don't know this guy i mean yeah he's a horrible horrible person but i'm not gonna and but it was and it became very difficult because you know what so as you and i are one of the reasons we're friends is we both like to laugh and tell jokes and yeah. and and see life in a funny way but once that person posts that thing on Facebook and and everyone in the comments is required to say, yes, you know, I'm in, I'm in, you know, um, immediately it destroys my capacity to bond with that person in any kind of real intellectual way, which requires an allowance of context, of irony, of satire, of like, you know, me it's not something I can even put because it would be seen as so insulting as like, you know, get off your, get off your knees. Like, you know, you want to make the world better, go volunteer at your local food bank, you know, yeah. sitting here reciting prayers about your, your, 
the white stain on your soul is it's not going to help the victims in, in New Zealand. Which, by the way, I know people live in New Zealand. It's a very enlightened liberal society. Like the idea that it's a white supremacist society is, is, is ridiculous. There are there are criminals in every society, and if we define ourselves according to the worst specimens of humanity, like what does that do to public debate? It's like I mean, it's it's, it's no better than defining ourselves by reference to the saints and martyrs of our society exactly. and saying like, well, you know, I, I'm so proud to be a white person because of like this heroic thing that this white guy did the other day. Like I would never, it'd be crazy to think that, but much in the same way, I'm not going to think, wow, I really have to work on my racism because some nutbag in New Zealand did this. Like it's, it would be crazy. Everyone would know it's crazy to think of the positive example of that. We should also think of it as crazy in terms of the negative example of that. Yeah. Like I, I, I couldn't agree with you. You know, couldn't agree more with you <clears> this because I grew up. I, you know, I have gone through the whole process of being someone who had faith, then lost his faith, then who went into the phase of the ultra hyper patriot uh, phase, and I, I have lost all of that too. <laughs> That's why I, I'm just all over the. When you say hyper patriot, you mean like <clears throat> Indian? My country patriot? is amazing. Okay. I, mean, I don't think India is bad or anything. I live there. It's by done choice. some pretty incredible things. Yeah, okay. I, I live there by choice, not by compulsion. Okay. Uh, I I have the choice. I've been married to a Canadian, but uh, I could have moved to Canada anytime I wanted to. But I still stay there. My country has problems, uh, like any other country. Uh, in some cases, more. But they have a colonial past, so we have to factor in the colonialism too. In the case of India. And I and I accept all these things, but you know, I've come to a point. I I'm fine in most places now. I, I like I'm here at your house. I'm having a good time. I'm in India at my friend's house. I'm having a good time. I've just lost that maybe a a moment of tribalism in my brain. And uh, it's the it's not that I'm a globalist or of any kind. I still believe in nation states. I believe in boundaries. I believe the idea of a nation state still makes sense from a governance perspective, not from any other perspective. I think it's easier to govern when you have nation states. You and especially in a neighborhood like India, which has Pakistan as a neighbor, we're very hostile neighbor. So we, we need this. Well, <clears throat> oppositional geopolitics can sustain national tribalisms. Because if you always have to be on guard against, you know, if you're <clears throat> if you're in South Korea and you're on guard against North Korea, Pakistan, India, Russia, Ukraine, uh, for many years, Canada, United States, there was like this fear of cultural takeover of Canada by the yes. United States. So these kind of oppositional geopolitical contexts can sustain nationalism as a tribalizing force. Yes. Right now in Canada, I mean, Canada doesn't have a Pakistan. Canada doesn't have a North Korea. Canada, and even the United States, like Canada used to have a nationalism that was based on a kind of cultural fear of mm -hmm. U.S. takeover. That's been destroyed by social media because Canadian progressives now feel the sense of kinship with American progressives. And American conservatives and Canadian conservatives now feel this kinship. So social media has caused what? like a vertical sort of tribalism along ideological lines as opposed to the horizontal tribalism that you saw at the, at the Canadian Canada U S border. So as a result, this is one of the reasons that can, that Canadian progressives have gone so loopy is they don't just have a God shaped hole in their brain. They have an anti-American shaped hole in their brain because the entire progressive Canadian establishment 
uh, during the cold, late Cold War period, uh, even very early 2000s when I started work as a journalist, um, had a, I would say, well-founded fear that Canada is this tiny country and we're going to get swallowed up by American sitcoms and American singers and American politics and American trade. And they're going to swamp our market with their products and you know, uh, no one's going to watch our TV shows and no one's going to listen to our singer, like no one's going to read our authors. Um, and so this whole idea of cultural protectionism became the, a dominant fear in the Canadian intelligentsia. And although I, I thought a lot of this was, was overwrought at the very least, it had the benefit of creating a kind of bonding idea within Canadian intellectual circles that say, well, you know, we stand for something. We are, we, we're beleaguered by the United States and we have to take steps to protect this identity. And it's a positive identity. Being Canadian was seen as this kind and gentle yeah. thing. Pacifism, multilateralism. Um, you know, as recently as the mid-2010s, this progressive magazine I used to work at, like I think its motto was, the world needs more Canada. And just a couple of years ago, the idea that the world needs more Canada suddenly became like, that was like hate speech. It's like, the world needs more Canada? It's like, the world needs more genocide? Like, it because... Such a decent society, Canada. It's a wonderful society, but in the late 2010s, there was this very sudden and abrupt phase shift among Canadian progressives where it went from Canada is a light unto other nations in regard to pacifism and multilateralism, um as opposed to the United States, which was all, you know, we, we had a, a thicker social safety net. We were, yeah. um, and there was a lot of pride. And in the space of just a few years, that was just inverted on itself in large part, not entirely because of social media, but that was a big factor. And suddenly it was like, we're no different from the United States. We're a blood soaked genocidal state, especially in regard to indigenous, indigenous people. Uh, we went in hard for the black lives matter movement, despite the fact that Canada's, uh, doesn't even have any issue over here well so the what's what's into what's really interesting now but look, racism affects every society yeah and, i mean and, i faced it uh in my college over here in 2001 and black people in canada face you know many of them will, will tell you terrible stories yeah. of racism like racism is a problem it's 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 like i have no time for people who say oh it's all in you know victim culture or something like racism is a real thing mm -hmm. however um what what you, you now have this um, movement in Canada that insists that Canada was a historically active mover on the slave trade and that we should be apologizing for our role in the slave trade. And despite the fact that the British Empire abolished slavery several decades before Canada came into existence, mm -hmm. but it has become this mainstream position in Canadian progressive circles that no less than the United States Canada was a player in the global slave trade. It is completely ahistorical, but if you point out the fact that Canada came into existence several decades after the British Empire abolished slavery, you're shouted down as being some kind of denier of Canada's historical crimes. But the real root of it is that a lot of the people who are making this point, they live their lives on social media, and in particular, American social media. And so when the United States went in for Black Lives Matter, we went in for Black Lives Matter. When the United States went in for, you know, the reparations movement, we went in for the reparations movement. And in a way, the United States really has 
taken over Canadian culture, which was, as I said, was once the greatest fear of Canadian progressives, but they've taken it over through social media and they've taken it over, I'd say, from the left. You know, they haven't taken it over with, with you know, sitcoms and, and mass media culture. They've taken it over through academic culture and through academic movements that have kind of turned a lot of Canadian progressives into clones of their American counterparts because they all inhabit the same social media backwater. Yeah, you know what? That actually, that analysis is so spot on. And I'll tell you some of my conversations, so obviously you can't take names, with folks in America. And they said, Canada is our laboratory. All our crazy progressive ideas that maybe we cannot push in America because of multiple reasons outside of California, because America still has a robust pushback culture also. I'm not talking about the extreme right-wing pushback. I'm talking about center-left, center-right pushback in America. There are reasonable people pushing back all the time. Canada is like, they actually consider Canada as a laboratory. They, they think, oh, we will do all these experiments on that little country out there who, who's not going to fight with us in any, any form possible. Like, I remember Justin Trudeau doing his performative uh, song and dance for Black Lives Matter very clearly. Well, he went down on one knee. Yeah, he went down on one knee. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, he just announced that he's coming for the G20 summit to India. I just hope he doesn't dance like a Bollywood star. He is not going to do that again. John. He's definitely not. No, 100%. He's not. He's gonna, you know what? He's going to be a suit and tie, and he's going to get off the plane, and I guarantee he's going to, like, it's going to be like he's at a funeral. Like, he's going to... If somebody plays some music, you'll see his body start to twitch, but he'll <laughs> he'll control it. He'll be like, no, no, uh, because no, I, um, I I think he he will be the very uh, model of formal diplomatic protocol. Please, yeah. I, I sincerely hope because you know the thing today it was announced that Justin Trudeau is visiting India, and the only thing on Indian social media was, please don't dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Um, but well, yeah. I mean, you and I have had this conversation. I think he's a pretty good dancer, but uh, I, I'm, I'm no expert. Uh, I mean, the, the thing is with with, with Justin Trudeau is uh, his public image is now a little bit more somber because, as, as you probably know, I think it's been yeah, about a month. He's, uh, he had an unfortunate separation. Separation from yeah. So everything about him is is cast uh, in, in the shadow of that. Um, I mean, Trudeau. What what you say about Canada being the laboratory for the United States in terms of social policy. Trudeau, I think, is many Americans' idea of an ideal leader in the sense he was like such an he's such an anti-Trump, right? At least originally he had this aura of youth about him and energy and progressivism. And the way he used social media obviously was very different. Um, but at the same time, this process works in reverse where if you're any kind of Canadian conservative, I don't consider myself a conservative, but if you look at people who really are conservative, or at least capital C conservative, it's the name of our ostensibly right-wing political party uh, on the national level and on the provincial level, um, they're constantly being asked, like, what do you think about what Ron DeSantis did? Or what do you think about what Trump just said? Or um, are you secretly trying to bring in these policies that like the, I don't know, the Oklahoma legislatures just brought it like, it's just assumed in many Canadian circles that whatever happens in the United States is going to become conservative dogma here in Canada, 
which I think that's been falsified. Like there's the Trump cult really got it. Those got very little steam in Canada. Yeah. And there's this denial of, of the fact that we're different countries. Like in the United States, something like 30% of people identify self-identify as born again Christians, whereas in Canada, the figure is closer to 10%. Um, but there's this conflation of the two countries and this weaponization of everything that happens in the United States in conservative circles has, oh my God, um, that's going to happen here in Canada. I mean, the best example I can think of is the abortion debate in the United States. So when the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, God, I guess it was about a year ago, uh, opened the door for states to prohibit abortion, yeah, there was this mania in the Canadian media for like, could this happen here? Is is, is our Canadian conservatives about to follow suit? Or, uh, our can and and I thought this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Like there is no major Canadian political party that in a million years would want to ban abortion. Yeah, there, our Supreme Court is is staffed in a completely different and much more professionalized way than the political circus in the United States. Um, you know, in a million years, the Canadian Senate would never permit such a And such the a Canadian law. Conservatives are not like... No, the they're American. not. And uh, like, Pierre Polivia is not like... He doesn't Trump. talk about it. And um, and and Harper, you know, he, he Stephen Harper, I'm talking about the, yeah, the, 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 the former, former Prime uh, Conservative, uh, multi-term majority Prime Minister who never made a move to ban abortion. But it's thought, well, it's, ha it's happened in the United States, so it's just around the corner of Canada. So... Every you know, every time I talk about Canadian politics, a lot of it comes down to pathologies of thought, which are either direct or indirect results of our anxieties about the United States. Um, and that that was the case in the era of where people talk about cultural protectionism, uh, as I said, the late twentieth century, and it happens now in the era of social media. You know, I will I will often tweet something about Canadian policy. And a guy uh, in the comments will be just like, that's exactly the kind of thing Ron DeSantis would say. Like, who's Ron DeSantis? Who's Ron DeSantis to me? He's, he's a political candidate in another country. Like, and this is a guy often, if you look at, at who the person is, who's often obsessed with keeping American conservative influences out of Canada. Mm. But they're often the people who have the most highest level of agitation and even awareness about everything that's happening in conservative circles in the United States, because that's that's their point of reference for, for everything. So it's, it's actually very difficult to have any kind of sane political discussion on a policy basis here in Canada, because everything always comes back to, well, what would Ron DeSantis say? Let's do the opposite of that. <laughs> like, that's not it's not a, a sustainable way of talking about policy if you're just always defining yourself. Uh, in opposition to what some politician in another country is saying or doing. And and I can, you know why I can relate to this? I'll talk to you about abortion, right? So BJP is considered this right-wing government, right? And this is how ill-informed discussion about India is in the West. So, so they'll be like, oh, so they must be anti-abortion. I was like, <laughs> I just start chuckling again. And I'm like, uh, do you know the abortion limit was increased uh, in India uh, between 2014 and 2019 uh, under the BJP government? And their pro-trans rights, I just and, learned. And, and that too, it was made, increased by, I think, two to three weeks. And they're like, wait, what? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
under the BJP government, the so-called right-wing government. I was like, when will you understand that the world doesn't revolve around America? Uh, America might be important, but they're not that important. And I wish Canadians grew a spine. Indians have grown a spine. Indians do talk back when they are uh, spoken in a condescending. Like the way, you know, it was so funny. When I'm in America, I speak up for Canadians. And I'm not even a Canadian. And I'm like, why can't Canadians stand up for themselves for once? Uh, Canadian conservatives are not American conservatives. There is a huge difference between, like for me, the Canadian conservatives are like uh, Clinton Democrats in many ways. Uh, so, look. Every major political party in Canada believes in universal medicine, universal health care, yes. which would make them socialists in the United yes. States. Uh, they, they all support uh, access to abortion. They all, there's no campaign to bring back the death penalty in Canada. Yes. There's no mainstream campaign to get rid of gay marriage in, in Canada. If you look at the actual policy positions of the nominally conservative parties in Canada, they would all be considered mainstream left or hard left or socialistic but there's always a grain of truth to these things and and so like the example is in canada of course we had that uh that convoy movement in ottawa yes where a bunch of it was led by truckers who were opposed to vaccine mandates uh, covid vaccine mandates they kind of took over the downtown of ottawa for a couple of weeks and i think it is fair it was fair for progressive progressive critics to say these guys were like inspired by the American anti-vax movement. Yeah. And by the way, technically speaking, the convoy movement was an anti-vax movement. It was anti-vax mandate movement. But I think it's fair to say that there wasn't was a, a woman heading it also vaccinated. Uh, I forgot the name Tamara or something. Uh, Tamara Leach. Tamara Leach. Yeah. yeah uh, she vaccinated. I, I actually don't know. Um, and by the way, some of the, it's, it's, it's entirely possible. Um, I do know that there's a lot of critics of vax mandates um who who were like i by the way i myself my doctor told me to stop getting vaccinated because i was vaccinated five times he says okay that's enough like yeah five times yeah John? yeah he's yeah um because look i just uh i kept putting it in my agenda every six months and so i'm a slave to google calendar so it says oh google calendar says it's for, forget big pharma forget big pharma google is the master of my of my body uh three shots Okay, well, so between us, we have averaged four, but so we're not anti-vaxxers. We've established that. So I, you know, some of the on the, the anti-vax mandate stuff, I agree with some of it. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think you should need to get vaccinated to go out and play like your golf course or something like that. But anyway, putting that aside, I think it was entirely fair for Canadian progressive to say, look, all these truckers paralyzing downtown Ottawa with their trucks, that is something. That's the kind of political theater that took inspiration from American populism. That's fair. However, when they then said, this is the equivalent of our January 6th Capitol riot, what? I'm like, that's not fair, because that was an attempt to overturn a democratic election. And it resulted in deaths, and it was incredibly violent. And it, to my mind, it resembled a coup. And so, again, all of these things, that you know, a grain of truth. Okay, you're right, populism can be dangerous. The convoy thing in, in, in Ottawa, I can see why a lot of people were concerned about that, you know, went over the line. But to then, again, this insistence that, well, we must be like Americans. So this thing had to be our January 6th moment. Like, again, it's, it's always, it always goes too far. 
um yeah, and it's, uh, it's and, ridiculous so i have to correct myself it was not between 2014 and 19 in fact it was done as early as 2021 it was called the medical termination of pregnancy amendment act 2021 done by the uh, the federal this is the, uh, abortion law yeah the okay. abortion law where they increase the limit in special cases from 20 to 24 weeks so this is a so called right wing government and that's India. and those gestational limits are actually much longer than the uh, analogous gestational limits in such socially progressive countries yes. as like Norway, Finland. Yeah. I mean there's a lot of European countries that we regard as quite socially liberal where you know after 12, 14, 16 weeks of of gestation um often it's it becomes more difficult to to get an, an abortion. I often tell my friends in the west as like India can learn a lot from the west but i think the west is missing out a lot from india too i think the way the especially the indian abortion law i always say this uh, a lot of my female friends in india uh, shout out to all those women who taught me about this law taught me the legislation they said look kushal i think the westerners could learn from our abortion legislation they could they could learn how there is a process of consultation you have to take three consultations it's a very robust process that we've tried to achieve over there in india the legislation in india is very quote unquote progressive act and, and it's not uh, so indian indian uh, social justice is very rawlsian indian social justice is not postmodern okay and rawlsian meaning the idea of like if you didn't know what position you were in society what kind of social contract would yeah. you pick yeah. yeah and 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 it it is deeply embedded in on the basis of rawlsian social justice in fact there are you know there are papers written on how indian courts uh, in in their later judgments even court rawls uh, while giving their judgments and indian law is very rawlsian in its nature which is why in india we have uh, you know in america they had the affirmative, uh, affirmative action uh, whole uh, shenanigan over there now it's very interesting in india reservations have been there for the scheduled castes scheduled tribes and other backward castes for 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 a long time and it was not a debate in india and and the weirdest bit was when coleman came on my podcast and coleman hughes <laughs> yeah coleman hughes and and coleman was just i could see it in his eyes he's like why is this indian so sorry just questions? just to to be clear talking about like affirmative action laws so like dalits could be yeah better yeah. represented yeah yeah that? in in government jobs in all kinds so of so caste based yes yeah. caste based reservations exist in india and they've always existed in india to remedy the, yes, the centuries of yeah, yeah yeah and 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 you know what there are people like me who are so called bjp voters who vote for narendra modi's party who are absolutely on board with it and now what i am a right winger but i mean I... part of this is again like there's a grain of truth to everything so when people talk about cultural hegemony part of avoiding cultural hegemony is avoiding taking your labels and projecting it on other cultures so atheism was example it's like yes. oh you're one of those indian atheists cool like i mean it's it's well no that's not quite right the term affirmative action it isn't just a term it's an idea of what those kind of preferences mean yeah. and when you impose that idea on other societies you you may not be imposing an accurate understanding of what their social context is. Yes. Um and unfortunately some of the great cultural imperialists of our area of our era are now on the left where you see when people think about the influence of the west on debates happening in places like India one of the primary sources of of fixation is 
the activism of Christian activist groups on the debates taking place. So, and again, grain of truth. So like in Africa, there are American Christian activist groups who have been trying to um, influence the debate about LGBT rights there and trying to get like African countries to take a more hardline approach on, on LGBT mm -hmm. people. However, this, this again, legitimate concern then can become this idea that somehow autonomous countries of, of a billion people are like the puppets of Christian groups in the United States. So that if whatever policies they're implementing are somehow with the result of the machinations of, of activist groups, which, which is, is, is not the case. Yeah, often. It denies uh, people in those countries, any kind of agency. It assumes they're stupid people who don't know. Anything. We saw this in Canada. So like, there's this video that came out a couple of weeks ago where there was this, I think it's just like a regular Canadian guy. He happened to be Muslim. And uh, Justin Trudeau was at some campaign event. I say campaign event, so what, there's no political campaign ongoing now, but, you know, some meet and greet. Mm -hmm. And this regular Muslim guy, it was caught on video, this <clears throat> regular Muslim guy was was taking Trudeau to task on some of the LGBT stuff and saying, you know, you're going a little far on this. <clears throat> That's going to be interesting. Well, it was very interesting because, again, it was on video. Um, and Trudeau started lecturing the guy about how Muslims like him were like being taken in by these American right wing <laughs> propaganda. And, and I see, you know, you can see why Trudeau would, would retreat to that talking point because it's politically unattractive to say, you Muslims, what's, what's up with you? Like, you know, he, so he has to trace it back to, well, this must be the fault of like Christian bigots who are sort of infiltrating, infiltrating Muslim uh, intellectual subculture via U.S. propaganda, and he just started. Trudeau just started like babbling about like U.S. right wing agents, and the guy was just like, "What are you talking about?" Like, does you know, like it's it against his faith? But but it was Trudeau was trying to sort of square the circle of you know once you decide the source of evil in the universe is this or that group, and in this case it's like American right wingers, you're going to look at people who have autonomous agency, like a Canadian Muslim who's made up his mind about an issue and say, no, 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 that's not your authentic point of view. You're just channeling some artificial point of view that was imposed on you by these evil people. You need to wake up because, you know, once you wake up, you're going to embrace my point of view. And it's, again, it's marketed as progressive, but it's a very narcissistic. It's infantilizing. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's everything is about white people. Yeah. And, 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 and tr there's Trudeau Muslim splaining, uh, LGBT rights, or I guess, uh, it's going to be white, white splaining. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting how this, the left is going to, you know, but it's a kind of cognitive dissonance, they, right? They, they're going to yeah. deal with this because the Muslim community is clearly not on board with the whole uh, LGBT. Like, I don't even understand this bit in your article where you said, because I was like, as no, you say, Trudeau's 2022 action plan instructed Canadians to adopt a term. What the hell is this? 2SLGBTQ1 yeah, yeah. plus instead of LGBT. What, what the hell is 2S now? What it's so sense? confusing. Uh, well, some people say it's did a cat walk, walk across Trudeau's keyboard. It's um, the 2S is a term that was invented in the late 20th century. It means two spirit and two spirit became this umbrella term to indicate indigenous conceptions of other genders, sexual orientations. The term 
can't really be defined. In fact, I cited in the article, there was this, an Ontario teachers union wrote a big report, spent a year trying to figure out what the definition of two S is. Mm. They admitted in the report that we can't figure out what two S means, but you, to be two S, all we know is that to be two S, you have to be indigenous and anti-colonial. I'm like, wait a sec. You can't even tell me if it's a gender identity or a sexual orientation, but you are telling me that you have to have a certain kind of political attitude to qualify for it. And again, this was an Ontario teachers union that spent a year looking at the issue, like the document they produced, which I read and I, I cited in this article was supposed to favor the use of the 2S term. Like they were trying to support it, but they couldn't figure out how to define it. And what's happened is the term 2S, first of all, it's kind of completely reductionist. Like Canada was inhabited by, by hundreds of different indigenous societies before European contact. Some of them, it's true, absolutely did have categories they used for maybe what we would now call effeminate men or... Fair enough. Like, they, you know, every society has to find ways of integrating everyone who defies gender roles in their society. Um, yeah, I can understand. My society does. Sure. And um, so, I mean, again, there's, like there's some truth to the this idea that all these societies had these, these categories, but... 2S became this reductionist term that basically meant what a white person conceives of as an enlightened indigenous person who has like blue hair and cross dresses. Like that's kind of in the Canadian arts and activism community. If you wanted to get, get a grant or you wanted to present yourself as this, it was sort of like every white person's understanding of like this mystical indigenous gay slash trans person except you weren't really supposed to call them gay or trans or non-binary because, no, it's 2S, this term no one can, to this day can define. But the real political function of the term 2S has been co-opted by white people, which is to give this sort of like aura of ancient mystic indigenous wisdom to what is essentially a white campus upper class movement. Absolutely. And it is culturally imperialistic it is appropriative yes. it's all the all the thought crimes that are attributed to right-wing people in canada this is like <laughs> it's a paradigmatic example of it it's, yeah. it's embarrassing um and on the other hand it, the movement has actually has a lot of profiteers because if if you're looking for a grant if you're looking to be on some kind of literary panel if you're looking to get your poem accepted by uh -huh. Um, some kind of recherche Canadian magazine, if you can say, not only am I Indigenous, I'm two-spirited. It's like you check two boxes. The editor or the recruiter... Then cannot say no. They, well, they can, maybe they can say no. They, they've said, well, we have someone who's three-spirited. But they can't ask you, what exactly do you... Like, we know what transgender means. We know what gay means. Non-binary, we kind of know what it means. Yeah. Two-spirit is the only thing where it's like, don't ask. Like, you're not allowed to ask. Literally, because um, it's seen as something that's opaque to you and me. Like, you literally, again, this is in the document I cited, you have to be anti-colonial to get it, and you have to be indigenous. Like, it's, it's a racial essentialist form of gender identity, where unless you have the correct racial bloodline, you can't 
you can't do it. It's it's a really weird thing that backdoors us into kind of race essentialism. Like if I said, well, I'm, I'm I have this weird gender identity that's only Jewish people can have. That would be weird. Like people in Canadian society, if I say I'm like I'm J spirited, you don't get it because you don't go to synagogue. Like that'd be pretty screwed up. But it's the same logic. It's absolutely the same logic. And I said, and they said, well, what do you have to be to be J spirited? Says so like, well, you have to be Jewish and you have to oppose anti-Semitism. That that's the same as saying you have to be indigenous this, opposed. This sounds like creationism, and uh, I don't know how else to say it. This is like uh, some left. It's really screwed up. It's very screwed up. Left wing progressive flat earth shit. But this gets this gets back to our original thing. It's like the same kind of people who are like you know buying dream catchers for their cars, and they wear special bracelets to keep off like evil energies and. Like there is this hunger, and I get it. I mean, there's this hunger for a conception of the Religion universe. Always wins, John. It does always win, it and always wins, it, no yeah. matter how much you and I try. Yeah, and and I, I and again, I'm I'm not an anti-religious activist. I mean, I kind of like I have a different. You have a more coherent worldview when it comes to this stuff. Um, I'm more like a professional eye roller. I don't offer. Leave me alone. Yeah, you're I, the you're the old atheist who just wants to be left I, alone. I don't want. To go to synagogue i'm the jew who doesn't want to go to synagogue and 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 it you can't fool me by saying well it's not a synagogue it's um you know it's a land acknowledgement and a pronoun check and uh a dei session do you want to come i said no no no. you, you think i'm stupid i i know what a religious service looks like like i'm not an idiot like just because you're there's no Torah doesn't mean it's not religious. Oh, like, so it's just insane, but I, I but I'm not starting my own church. I'm not starting yeah. my own synagogue. I just don't want to go to yours. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. You know, John, people like you and I sometimes, uh, maybe we can end it over here. And, uh, you know, people like you and I, we don't realize how much religious privilege we have. I think this world is <laughs> built by religion. We have media privilege. Yeah. I mean, see this thing, we can be professional shit disturbers like that. And that is kind of like, so the, I, the notion of privilege, I'm not, I, I don't discount it. that. Yeah, there is privilege, privilege, money, access to capital, access to education, you know, uh, good health. You know, you travel around the world. I uh, I don't travel as much as you, but I'm able to get on a plane and go places and have fun. And But but the other source of privilege I have is that I have this job where I'm able to take the piss out of things and people pay me money for it. Yeah, Whereas most you. people, including probably most people listening to this, don't have that privilege. If you're, and you know, if you say something that the people you work with disagree with, left or right, you're going to, unlike us, we get rewarded for it. Like, yeah. we're, so, so I, I do, I, this is one of the forms of privilege I unironically acknowledge. Uh, you know, and, and it's fun to live this kind of life and fulfilling. Um, but I recognize not everybody, you know, can just walk around um taking the piss out of everything the way we do yeah i i and, and and i understand which is why i i feel at times for people like you and i it is our moral responsibility because we have been blessed with a blessed not in a spiritual sense but just blessed I have no, we have no moral response no no i just i disagree with that I, just, I i'm doing it because it's fun and but you know what the reason i do it isn't because i feel more responsibility the reason is i can't shut up if i if i see <laughs> this crap going on there are people like, you know, I don't know if you have this in India, but you have it in your neighborhood. These people who put up signs on their front lawn says in this house, we believe in 
and then it just lists this laundry list of like progressive tenants. No, they would be called crazy. In India. So, but we had this, we had this, uh, I don't, you don't see those signs anymore, but it says it starts in this house. And then it says, we believe the following. And it's like essentially a political statement okay. of like hyper progressivism. I'm sure you've seen it without realizing, maybe you thought it was a this is their religious symbol. Yeah, of course. It's a mezuzah. It's a mezuzah. Yes. It's, a, it's a lawn mezuzah. Just in the same way, like having seven masks on your face is yeah. a face mezuzah. Or having an om symbol or a cross outside yeah. your house. Yeah. Uh, by, this sign, by, by this sign, we shall conquer. It's um, 99 out of 100 people pass that guy's house and don't say anything. I'm the guy who who wants to knock on the guy's door and say, really? Like, you know, just like, is this for a tax, a religious tax? Shit starter. But I have to, I have to remind myself, it's his right to do that. I have to remind myself, it's his right to wear seven masks when he's playing golf by himself. It's his right to tell me his pronouns. It's his right to say a line of thought. And it is his right. I love the fact that I live in a country that people... Can, can do all this stuff. I just don't want to be forced to do it myself. That's the only thing I, I want. I think that's, that uh, we could not have uh, ended, <laughs> ended this discussion uh, in a better way, John. I It's always a pleasure talking to you. I uh, I always look forward to meeting you whenever I'm in Toronto. You know, uh, at least once a year we get to meet, we get to hash things out, yeah. uh, whether the world has collapsed or not. But uh, I wish you all the best and I hope to see you once again next time. Once again, one day we're going to do this in India. Oh, yes. Uh, in my house. Yeah. yeah. Yes. In this house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah. As you can see, I have officially taken over John's house. But guys, before we wrap it up, once again, I want to remind everyone: in the description of the podcast, you'll see uh, John's social media links, the link to the essay. I urge each and every one of you, especially if you're an Indian and you're listening to this, and if you're an Indian Canadian, I know I have a decent listener base in Canada. So all my Canadians who listen to me. Go and read this essay of John and understand what's happening in your country. And just, your... just to remind you, my co-author, Margaret Wente, mm -hmm. Peggy Wente, she's known here. I just don't want to, because you've finally highlighted my, my co-authorship of the article. I want to be an ally to women and to my co-author. So Peggy Wente, I don't expect that she's a household name in India. Yeah. Although maybe now that'll change. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now. And Indians have a soft corner for Canadians, uh, other than Justin Trudeau, who dances. I, I'm, I'm really, I. So I'm betting you right now, when he gets off that plane, all your your Indian listeners, he will be, he will look like he's going to a funeral. He'll be sedated, and if some guy shows up with a boombox and starts playing the music, you'll see his body twitch to the rhythm, but he will resist. He'll like, like put his hands on his leg and say, no. Not this time. No, <laughs> sir, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not gonna this, yeah. You're not gonna get me on that one. No. Although I love that. <laughs> You'll see his shoulders start to sway. It'll just I hundred percent I'm calling that. I'm calling that I'm predicting it right now. Uh, all right, guys, we'll wrap it up over here. But please, if you can, uh, this podcast is only member driven. So if you are uh, someone who listens to this podcast regularly, if you can do support the membership program, whether on YouTube or Fanmo or on Patreon, it doesn't matter where you are. But do try to support this even uh, with Quillette. If you can support Quillette on Patreon, do go and support them on Patreon. If not, just like this video. If you're an audio listener, leave a rating on Spotify. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye. Yep.